You are listening to the First Baptist Jinx podcast. To learn more about FBC Jinx, including our gathering times, visit us online at fbcjinx.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Cody Brumley. Well, good morning, First Baptist Jinx family. It's always good to be with you. We will be in Ezra chapter 3 today. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ezra chapter 3. If you are a guest with us, you heard that right, we are a family, and it's something we would love for you to experience. We're glad that you're here. At the end of service, you can bring a connect card to those double doors right over there uh, for kind of next steps. It gives me a chance to get to know you and your story and us to give you a little gift uh, for saying thank you for being here. Uh, To catch you up, we've been working right through the book of Ezra. So uh, we are in chapter 3, headed to chapter 4 next week. And what's happened so far in this story is God kept his promise to send his people to exile because they rejected him. And then God kept his promise to bring them back from exile to Jerusalem. So they've arrived out of exile. They're there walking in the promise. And so we get to the great moment of now what? I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your own life personally, that you're like, all right, God, I'm all in. I'm turning the page. I'm coming to you. You're like, what do I do next? And, and I've seen that before. I actually like seeing people give their life to Jesus hanging out back there in that room. And they're like, amen. And one time this kid goes, what now? And I was like, well, brother, you need to go find your parents and they got to take you home. Like, it's just what now? But we all answer that. And in a more significant way, We answer it both decisively as believers once. I'm following Jesus. What is that? What do I do next? But then also daily, as we return to God, every time they're like, God, I'm coming back. I'm correcting this. I'm leaving this. I'm not going to talk like that anymore. I'm not going to give into that addiction. I'm not going to follow that path. I I, want to walk with you. Then what? And what the Israelites do in Ezra chapter 3 gives us a whole lot of wisdom for those moments. So that's why we're going to study it. Ezra 3 starts like this, verse 1. When the seventh month came, by the way, the seventh month is the uh, beginning of the year for the Israel calendar. And so uh, the Israelites had a lot of festivals that happened at that month. So this is kind of a new beginning. The seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in their towns, and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And then arose Jeshua, son of Josedach, and his uh, fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiai, with his kinsmen. These are the two leaders, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And if you weren't here a year ago, you may not know this. Zerubbabel is my favorite name in the Bible, in case you were wondering. Um, I, wanted, I made a play to name Walker, my son, Zerubbabel, because Zerubbabel Brumley is just... Isn't that good? See? Um, but instead of him getting beat up at school, his name's Walker. And so, um, so anyway, but this is Zerubbabel and Jeshua. They're the leaders. And here's what they do. They get together with their kinsmen and all the priests, and they build the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. First thing they do. We've moved back. We're now a new people. What are we going to do? We're going to build an altar. Step one. And it says they built it the way Moses described it. That's out of Exodus chapter 20. We get the description of an altar, this heap of land that God says, everywhere that I cause my name to be remembered, you can build an altar for me. But you can't build it out of hewn stones, meaning that no tool touches it. It's just whatever God makes available, you put together. And you can't build it taller than anybody else's altar because then your own shame is exposed. And so altars have to be with whatever you have can't be prettier than anyone else's, and it can't be taller than anyone else's, and thus we have a picture of how every person comes to God. They come to God on his terms, with humility, through a sacrifice, 
And it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter your social status. Everybody approaches at the same altar. And so I love that picture, and that's what they start with. They get these stones, they build an altar to make sacrifices. And so they start their relationship with God before anything else. That was the thing they had to get right. Now, an altar essentially was where, as I said, God causes his name to be remembered, and he deals with the sins of man, and the, res- the relationship is restored with God. That's what happens at an altar. Now think about those three things, and as a New Testament church, what comes to mind for us? Well, the cross. The cross is where God causes himself to be remembered. The cross is where God deals with sin, and the cross is where our relationship is made right with God. That's why we don't have altars anymore. In case you were reading the Old Testament, and you're like, where are all the altars now? Why aren't they like, you know, drive by someone's house, and they've got unhewn stones out there. You know, like, they don't need those. They don't need those because we have Jesus. And so we, when we use the term in the modern-day church, like, come to the altar, like, sometimes people are like, oh, like, the st- like no, these are just steps. <laughs> They're not an altar. What we mean is come to that point in your life where you remember God and where you deal with your sin. You put it before him and say, God, I don't want that anymore. I accept a sacrifice for it. I just want you, and your relationship is made right with God. When you hear about the altar of God, that's what we mean. Deal with your sin, come to Jesus, and experience life with him again. And so from that relationship, the rest of their life happens. So what we see is that life is altered by life at the altar. If you want to see your life differently, it doesn't start with all of the best habits and all the best practices and you making it better. It starts with you meeting with God to have your relationship right with God. That will alter all the rest of your life. And so that's where they start. Their life is altered by their life there. Let's get this one relationship right. And out of that relationship, it says that they set the altar in its place. Verse 3. This is great. For fear was on them because of the people of the lands. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, I like this because as I was reading, I thought, good on them. They're so spiritual, right? Like, they must have known that song. Jesus at the center. They just already figured it out. Let's make Jesus the center of everything. And they're, oh, good. That's not what they did. This wasn't spiritual. This was strategic. They moved to a new place. And they were afraid of the people around them. And out of fear, they were like, what's the one thing we've got to get right? The generations before them, by the way, out of fear, made treaties with the kings around them. The generations before them compromised. The generations before them didn't keep the laws of the Lord. The generations before them missed it. And they said, we're not going to make that mistake again. I've seen what that did to that generation. Our generation, I'm afraid, and out of my fear, I'm running to God. He's the only one that can protect me. If there's one thing i got to get, it's that. And so they find their protection in the name of the Lord. And, And we all do this. We all run somewhere and put something at the center of our life that we find our identity and our hope and our protection and our security from. And for them, it was going to be God. So as soon as they do that, the next thing they do is they order their life around it. It says that they make burnt offerings morning and evening. Verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings for everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. 
Well, that's a whole lot of offerings, exactly. The returned life to God is ordered around an active altar. You want to know what you do when you come back to God? You commit to having an active altar in your life, an active place that you meet with God to deal with your sin and to restore your relationship. Life is lived from there. And, and we do this all the time. Every person, and I'm going to step into like a little philosophical place for a minute. So out of the Bible and just into this, and I, I'm a Collinsville graduate. If I can handle it, you can. I believe in you. All right. So I, I would argue that every human being is religious. Every human being puts something at the center of their life to draw their identity and hope and security from, and then they order the rest of their life around that thing. We see this happen a lot. I'll just use what Jesus talked a lot about in the New Testament. Money is a great example. All right, I'm going to, my relationship with money goes to the center of my life. Why? Because if I have enough of it, then I feel really secure. Why? Because I, I hope that if I get that much, then life can look like this. And if I had this much, then I could, my status, the way people see me are these things. So my identity, my security, my hope comes from my relationship with money. So I put that at the center of my life, and I'm going to order the rest of my life around keeping that, having that, and getting more of it. That's called religion. Religion is ordering my life around the object of my worship. We all do it. And I use money as an example. It's not just that. It can be status, it can be title, and I don't just mean work titles, I mean titles like husband or uh, wife or mom or dad. It can be successful, it can be hobbies, it can be queso. I love queso. There are days that I order my life around when I can have queso. All right, hey, and I say that, we're all sinners. I have had moments, I look up and I go, wait a second, the thing that is causing the order of my life isn't my relationship with God. I'm not fighting for that most. I'm allowing something else to put my life in order. Here's what I'm going to say. That means we are all humans. We are all worshipers. We are all religious. So the question is, can your religion, your practicing, save you? Can the religion that you are practicing right now Whatever relationship for you is at the center of your life, whatever it orders the rest of your life, will that save you? And I'll tell you this, if it could be taken away, then it can't save you. If you could lose it tomorrow, it can't save you. There's only one thing that lasts, and that's the place you want to put your hope and your trust. That is in your relationship with God, and you order the rest of your life around it. So when people are like, I love Jesus, but I hate religion, I'm like, no. No, you're just ordering your life around something else besides God. I have religion, but religion I practice to protect my relationship. All right, so that's, that's what, how we practice religion. We practice religion to protect our relationship, not to have one. So I go to church. Why? Because that helps me protect my relationship with God. I have a quiet time, and I meet with a group of guys about what I'm studying in Scripture. Why? Because that helps me protect my relationship with God. We open the Bible in my home, and we pray in my home, and we worship in my home, and we talk about these things, because that helps protect my relationship with God. I have boundaries in my life to protect my relationship with God. And you could say, Cody, you sound religious. Yes, I am. And I'm ordering my life around making sure that my relationship with God is right, because if that's right, everything's right. So that's what they do. Now, once they've done that, verse 6, from the first day to the seventh month, they begin to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. 
but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they worship first, and then they work, right? Work comes from worship. You've heard me say this a lot. That's why we meet on Sundays, the first day of the week. We worship here, and then we work the rest of the week from worship. But it's actually not an order of activity. It's an order of priority. They worship first because all of work comes from a heart of worship. So it's not just Sunday. It's every day. I worship the Lord. I pray. I read scripture. I put myself before God. I meet him at the altar, and I order my life in a way that the rest of my day, I can work with whatever God's doing from a heart of worship. It starts there. Now, this is kind of like, uh, you may not know this about me, but I am the assistant to the assistant coach of the flag football Cowboys. I know you're impressed. I know some people. And uh, and we're at this practice the other day, and I look at a kid, and I'm like, hey, you're on offense. And this kid goes, yes. And he runs over here, and he gets lined up, and he's like, doing one of these. And I, so I'm over here, and I go, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I'm on offense. Said, yeah, do you know what play we're running? No. <laughs> Come here. Okay. He runs up there. I'm like, this is called a huddle. You, we play from the huddle. If you're not here, you don't know what to do. You don't know what's going on or what we're trying to accomplish. It's like, okay, got it, huddle, right. So in the same way, right, like we work from worship. We don't work for worship. We work from it. We don't work for relationship with God. We work from a relationship with God. That's a really important distinction, by the way. And by the way, if you're playing football and you're like living for the huddle, like you probably shouldn't play football. If someone's like, what's your favorite part about football? And you're like, I like when we get to the middle and, all, and I hang out with all my friends in that circle. Yes. Football's probably not your sport. <laughs> all right? In the same way, like, it, that's not the game, right? Hey, our religious activity is not our relationship, nor is it the work. It's the thing that we do to protect our relationship so we can have one with God, and then we work from it. The work happens outside of this. And that's what we want. We want you in the game. That same kid also left the huddle and just took off down the field. He came back. I said, well, what was that? And he was like, I ran out. And I said, no, I said, run and out. And out. And he said, yeah, I ran out. I said, you know what? Good job, man. High five. You ran hard and you made it to the huddle. We're going we're gonna to celebrate those. We've got a little bit more work to do. And so in that sense, listen, we're, we're going to celebrate the small victories. We'll talk about that. But we've got to know we live from that relationship. It's got to start there, and we work out of that, and so that's what they do. They get to work. It says, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, y'all may not know this, but this is exactly how Solomon went about getting the trees to be able to build the first temple. So they're just doing the same thing that he had done. It says, in the second year after their coming, uh, to the house of God in Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of uh, Jehozadak, they made a beginning. All right, now it's time to start. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, all who'd come up to Jerusalem from captivity. So everyone's there, and they appointed Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Now listen to this. Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and uh, Cadmio with his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. A couple of things to acknowledge from that right there. First of all, the work of God is a family affair. It is. Once you... 
you, you've organized your life around the worship of God. You say, okay, this is who we are. We're going to fight for our faith, practice our faith, live our faith. Now there's things to do. Now as we go about these things, we're going to get our whole family involved. And so you see the sons and the brothers and everybody getting involved in the work. And you also see there's a lot of work to do. So everybody has a task that they can accomplish in, the, in what God's doing. So we, out of worship, we say, God, where are you working? The old Henry Blackaby prayer. God, where are you working? Let me join you in it. And so we're in it. So we are working with God in these things. Now, from that place where we work from worship, the builders then laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, the king of Israel. So they went way back to the days of David to learn this. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And then they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they've done this work and now they're celebrating. And it's worth celebrating by the way, this is the fourth reenactment in the text so far. It says that they built an altar like Moses. It said that they instituted the feast like we see in Leviticus. It says that they built the temple. They did it the same way that Solomon had done it. And now it says that they are celebrating this just like we see in 2 Chronicles with the first temple when the Levites and the priests are there in chapter 5. And it says, with, the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and musicians, and they gave praise to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. I bring this up because whenever you return to God, you say, God, all right, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm going to start living this life. And you don't know what to do? God has already provided generations of faithful people who followed him before you. Walk like they walked. The, the best way to, to live a new life is often in old ways that we've seen before. It's called discipleship. And so this group, as they return, they're like, what do we do? They're like, I don't know. What did the last faithful generation do? Let's, let's go to them. By the way, for this group, it meant skipping over a generation. They're looking back at David. They're looking back at Moses. So if in your life, Someone lived a religious life, but you're like, I didn't see any fruit of the goodness of God in your life. My experiences with the church were just bad. My experiences with a mother or father who practiced the faith, they, they weren't good. Whatever your story is, if there's people of faith that didn't practice it well, I'm not saying mimic their faith. I'm going, God has given you generations upon generations of people who've walked with him, who've missed it, who've repaired it. Learn from them. When you come to Jesus, you don't have to figure it out on your own. And you don't have to make up a new way to follow Jesus. Pro tip, if someone's making up a new way to follow Jesus, you just don't do it. Other people have done it better for longer and more faithful. And so that's what we do. That's why I am in a D group, right? That's why I'm reading that Bible with these guys, because I need other influences in my life. I have learned God gave me men to disciple me my life. And so if there's something good I've done, it's because I was discipled in it. It's because someone else sent me down and said, his name was Joe. He said, hey, let me show you how to read the Bible and ask good questions. And it was Bob who said, hey, let me show you how to, how to lead others. It was him, Bob also, who said, hey, let me show you how to say you're sorry because you blew it. Let me show you how to share your faith. I remember walking a college campus with him. And he was like, all right, this is how you live out your faith. All of these great things that I learned that, that, that are my walk with God now. I learned somewhere. 
and it's from a generation before me. That's why discipleship matters so much here at First Baptist Jinx. And that's what I want for you. I hope you have that in your life. And if not, let us help you find it because it matters. So that's what they do. They, they order their life around their worship. They build a life of worship, right? And then they work from a relationship with God, not for a relationship with God. Right? So they're working from that, not for it. But out of that, they do this great work with God. And then out of that work, they're doing, they have this big celebration for what God's doing. Now, that's all great and good to see. And you might say, Cody, so that's what I do. I return to God. The first thing I do, I start in my heart. God, I'm going to meet with you every day at the altar in my life, at the cross. I'm going to deal with my sin. I'm going to be right with you. And then after that, I'm going to prioritize my worship and my faith around anything else that I could. i got to protect that relationship. So I'm going to live a life of faith. Great. And then I'm going to partner with God in the work. So if I do all of those things, then what's waiting for me is parties and everything's good. Not so. We have two more verses left in the chapter. And these last two verses provide a warning for us. So we have a good, a good model to follow, but here's the warning. Verse 12. Many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, here's the key, old men who'd seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. Though many shouted for joy so that people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Here's this giant celebration and in the middle of it, you have people that are weeping instead. You have people that are just completely disappointed. These two things mingled together. And so while I said new life is best practiced in old ways, right? We talked about that. Like it's, you can look at the generations before you and you can live out this new life the way that you'd walked with them. There may be some that are actually just stuck in old ways. There may be some who can't see the goodness of what God's doing in that moment. And so it says they weep. And the clue is that they were the old men who'd seen the first house. And thankfully, God sent prophets during this time to help us understand why they were weeping. So if you go to Haggai chapter 2, in verse 2, the prophet at this time, Haggai said, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelteai, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What the prophet says is, hey, those of you who, who are older, who saw the temple when it was here last, doesn't this look like nothing to you? Isn't that, isn't that how you see it? Zechariah, who's also a prophet at this time, in chapter 4, verse 8, says the word of the Lord came to him, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Why were they weeping when everyone else was celebrating? The picture we get is that they thought this was a small thing. The foundation was laid and they went, that's, that's not what it used to be. They thought it was as nothing. So here's a couple of things we need to consider. One is that the only people not mentioned are those that were unmoved. We have people that are moved to tears and people that are moved to celebrating. The idea of an unmoved person of God just really isn't in Scripture. And so if the things of God don't move you, you should be on alert. Now, 
If you're being moved, here's the second thing we see. Neither one of them are wrong. Neither one's corrected in Scripture or rebuked, or does it say they're wrong? So those that are weeping are allowed to weep. They're completely allowed to be disappointed in this moment. And so they look on it, say, all right, that's it. You're disappointed. It doesn't stop the people celebrating, but they're allowed to feel disappointment. And we see this in our faith, and I'll say in church, all the time. Uh, Almost weekly, there's someone who's telling me a story, either about our church or about another church, and they're telling me how disappointed they are. Well, yeah, I mean, like, Cody, you don't preach like so-and-so, or, well, the music's not like that, or like, well, but you guys don't do groups the way we used to do groups. We, oh, groups at this place, but you just don't do that, or the way that this or that. And, hey, and, that, and that's fine. Do you know why it's fine? Because you can be in the middle of God doing an incredible work, and you can just be disappointed with the things you don't see. That's okay. There's seasons that that's going, and it's going to happen. If it hasn't happened to you yet, There'll be a moment, you're sitting in church and you're like, man, this just isn't what I thought it was gonna be. If I was doing all this right, I thought it would be different. I'm at the church, I joined a group, I started volunteering, I'm tithing, I'm doing all the activities that Cody says to do, and this still just doesn't feel like, like what I wanted. You can be disappointed, but here's what scripture shows us. Experiencing disappointment does not excuse disobedience. It's okay to experience disappointment but it cannot be an excuse to disobey. It cannot be an excuse to miss being a part of what God's doing. When you go back to Haggai chapter two, the very next verse, after he says, is this not small in your eyes? Verse four then says, yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. He says, work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came up out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He said, you can be disappointed. It's not what you want it to be right now. But don't miss that I'm working. So he says, be disappointed and then get to work. Get past your fear. Get past whatever's bothering you and join in what I'm doing because I'm doing something worth being a part of. That's how God instructs his people. And that's why you have those that are disappointed that it's not what I wanted it to be right alongside those that are full of joy because God's family is big enough for people to be so excited about what God's doing right next to people that are so disappointed. And that's okay. But if you're disappointed, don't stay there. There's too much good going on and, th- and that's what they were celebrating. And I'm so thankful that the ones that were joyful didn't let the disappointed ones steal their joy. They said, well, we're going to celebrate because for them, they'd never seen the old temple. For them, they show up and it's ruins and suddenly it's not ruins. There's an active altar. There's the foundation of God. God is moving and I see it and I get to be a part of it. So they're like, come on, trumpets and cymbals. Like that, that, that's where they're at. 
And they were right to celebrate, weren't they? They were right to celebrate because God was doing something that even though the others said, hey, that's a small thing, it wasn't small to them. And that's something I want to tell you, by the way. If you are taking a step of faith, if you are taking a step of faith, let no one despise it as small. If today you leave and you're like, I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to meet at the altar with God, deal with some sin, love him, and believe that I'm a new person. And you open it up tomorrow, don't close it and then go, well, Cody's probably been reading his Bible for like 20 years straight. (laughs) None of that. Don't show up to your small group and be like, hey, I read my Bible once this week, and someone be like, just once? No. Listen, you close that Bible and you say, I met with a living God just like I said I would. And then you tell someone who's going to be excited for you. If you can't find anybody, find me. I've picked up the phone and called people who sent me an email. Hey, I had my quiet time. You what? Come on. That is great. Let's go. I remember sitting in a small group one time. This guy that had been new to the group, he's like, I didn't cuss out my coworker this week. And I was like, we're having a party. Come on, brother, live that faith. Right? Why? Because every step is significant in the kingdom. Let's go. And so that's, so, so you celebrate, and you celebrate with them, because also what you might esteem as small, God might be doing something significant. Do not despise the small things. You celebrate them in your life and in the lives of others, because God is doing something right now. Don't be so disappointed that you miss it. See, in Ephesians chapter 2, we find out that God says, you now belong to a new people because there was a foundation of the apostles and prophets laid on which Christ is set as the cornerstone and you are being built into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Foundation. Catch the word? They were throwing a party over a laid foundation. For them, it was a temporary foundation. It was the next step. They were celebrating over the process. They, they didn't even know the bigger picture. God had laid the foundation of the completion of the entire Old Testament. What he had set in motion since the moment Adam and Eve left the garden and he'd been unfolding over centuries, he has now brought to a conclusion the foundation has been laid by which Jesus Christ could arrive and fulfill salvation for all people. They were celebrating a moment, but God was saying, you should be celebrating because I've completed the foundation of the prophets. My story is unfolding. And the temple that would be built on the temporary foundation, by the way, the second temple, it wouldn't house the, the Ark of the Covenant that's, that was gone in exile. It wouldn't house Aaron's budded rod. It wouldn't house the holy man. It wouldn't house the, the holy fire was gone. The mercy seat was gone. The umen and thumen, the things that were used to discern God's will in the original temple, they were gone. The fire was gone. The Shekinah glory that rested on the temple hadn't shown up. It was gone. All of those things in the second temple weren't there because the second temple wasn't going to house physical things that God's people could put their hope in those instead of God. The new temple would house Jesus Christ who would show up and fulfill everything I just listed. He was that fire. He is the mercy seat. He is the ark that shows the presence of God. He is the decisive judgment of God. He is everything that was absent in the new temple. Jesus Christ completed. Because God said, you don't need objects for hope. You need me. And so he gave him relationship. 
And that's why, that's why we start with our relationship. When you return to God, you say, that's what I've got to get right. I just need you, God. I'm going to order my life around making sure that I've got you. And once I have you, I'm going to enjoy whatever work you put in front of me. And I'm not going to live in disappointment. I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to live in celebration because Christians live lives of celebration. It's, it's a schedule of feasts. It's a party with music. That's, that's what we are. So what is our application? Our application is that you build a life of worship. And you build a life of worship by learning from the past how to live in the presence. And no, I did not mispronunciate present. You learn from the past how to live in the presence. That's where our joy is and that's where our hope is. Not just in being present, but in being in God's presence. And so you say, I'm going to build a life where I worship first and I learn how to be in the presence of God in every active moment in real-time relationship with God so I see what he's doing and I can join in it. That's the life that we were meant to live. The past is a great place to learn from. It is a terrible place to live. And so if you are stuck there, whether because of sin or because of previous experiences or expectations, I would just plead with you as Haggai did, I understand. But it's time to leave it and get to work. Join what God's doing. Because God's doing something right now. Let's pray. God, we believe. We believe that you are doing something even now in our midst. Father, I believe that there are lives... You are transforming even now. People that came in knowing that they needed to turn to you, but maybe they didn't know what was next. So in this moment, God, would you call them to you? Would you tell them you're enough? Would you tell them they've got a church that will celebrate their faith and help them know how to walk with you, that they are not alone? And God, make us that church. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to our podcast. We hope that you've been encouraged and challenged to take steps closer to Jesus. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, share with your friends. It really does make a difference. And lastly, make sure to follow us on all of our social media at FBC Jinx to keep up with all that's going on in the life of our church. Again, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.